I love play rehearsal because it's the best, because it is fun. I love play rehearsal and I get depressed as soon as it's done. But not depressed as in like kill yourself depressed. No, I'm not into self-harm. Dude, I swear here, check my arm. See, I just use the word to emphasize a point. Show the passion that I've got. I am passionate a lot. I have magigantic feelings, red and frantic feelings about most everything. Like gun control, like spring. Like if I'm living up to all I'm meant to be. I also have a touch of ADD. Where was I? Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 31st, 2019. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play, God Shows Up, begins performances April 6th at the Actress Temple Theater on 47th Street with an opening night on May 13th. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's jump right into it. Peter, last week, uh, Michael and I talked about Kiss Me Kate, and you were unable to go to it because uh, somebody was out. But you did get back to it this week. So tell us what you thought about Roundabout Productions, um, Roundabout Roundabout's production of Kiss Me Kate. Well, uh, the irony is that Stephanie Stiles, who plays Lois Lane, which has nothing to do with Superman, um, <clears throat> in the production was the person who was out, which is why I had to postpone a week and uh, until she got back. So um, as it turned out, uh, she represented the problem I have with the production, not the actress. She's doing what director Scott Ellis asked her to do. She's doing what um, I imagine Amanda Green um, did with rewrites, I imagine. But <clears throat> uh, to me, this is the problem, because for all the talk that we have been hearing about political correctness, sensitivity mm-hmm. to women, um, the changes that had to be made to the inherently sexist Kiss Me Kate, um, I think this production really offers still one glaring insult to women, and that's Lois Lane, because uh, I don't know if you know the character, uh, those of you who are listening, but she's an aspiring actress who's dating her her co-star, Bill Calhoun, in this musical version of Taming of the Shrew. Uh, She's also flirting with her uh, director-producer star, Fred Graham, um, which is one reason why he cast her as Bianca in this uh, musical version of Taming of the Shrew. But... They've made this character very different from orig- the original character. So uh, this Lois has a squeaky voice, an overly silly laugh, uh, a glazed look that suggests she's just been hit in the head by a two-by-four. And she mispronounces uh, $5 words such as chiropodist. Um, how does she say it, Michael? Um, do you, do Cairo, you chiropodist. All right. Now, these four choices are not found in the original script, stage directions. I did check. So uh, considering that Lois was originally played by Lisa Kirk, who, believe me, was no shrinking Violet, or Ann Miller. Uh, She was a strong presence, so why make her weaker now? And this is really a problem when we come to Always True to You in My Fashion, uh, which has to be the Cole Porter song with the best ever wordplay. When Lois sings about her sugar daddy, she says, um, if a Harris Pat means a Paris hat, uh, she'll do what he wants. So... It's so sophisticated, this song. So why is this uh, moron um, singing this sophisticated song when she's been set up that way? Now, uh, believe me, I gave a thought to How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, where um, Hedy LaRue seems to be a dim bulb. And then she later uh, says, um, I guess I'll have to wait for that pigeon until after he's married. Um, <clears throat> so I thought about that and I thought maybe she's putting it on. But I don't think that's what they were getting at. I thought it was they thought it was really funny to do the tired old cliche that the actress is um, uh, silly. 
And um, I, uh, so I didn't like that. Most of the rest of the production I liked. Um, I really did. And um, yes, Kelly O'Hara um, does sing it beautifully. Everybody's talking about her so in love, which is terrific. I'm not minimizing that. But at the end of the first act, she does some trilling that's astonishing. Um, Will Chase does the job very well. And Good uh, and Blue um, does extraordinarily well extraordinarily well um, in his uh, Bianca dance. It may be an irrelevant number to the show, but he does a very good job, especially on the staircase. Uh, handsome production, um, nice sets. Uh, occasionally, um, things happen that are a little um, over the top in terms of direction, but I'm wondering if Scott Ellis is saying this is the way Fred Graham directed things. You know, maybe he's the problem. So so I think that's an issue. Uh, everybody always complains about Brush Up Your Shakespeare that comes out of nowhere, and I wish that this could be solved, which could be solved very easily, which is the idea that when Fred says to the gangsters, you got to hang around, because if you don't hang around, um, uh, Lily is going to walk off the show. Um, I would like to have them say, okay, we'll stay, but can you give us a number? We've always wanted to do a number on stage. And that way, at least you could justify Brush Up Your Shakespeare. So anyway, um, a decent enough revival, uh, certainly worth seeing. Uh, the score, of course, remains one of Broadway's greatest ever, even though I realized for the very first time, the Cole Porter was very stingy with lyrics on another open and another show. And considering they repeated endlessly in the opening number, um, it, I do get a little tired of hearing four weeks you rehearse and rehearse, etc. So um, he could have done a little more by having having the um, various people on stage say, oh, my God, I'm going to be working with him again. Oh, I hate him. Oh, it's so great. I had an affair with her. Maybe we'll read. There were so many things these actors could have said. And yet um, Cole Porter settled for a lot less with that opening number. But if he settled for less there, he certainly didn't settle for less with the rest of the score, which, again, is one of Broadway's best. So, so Kiss Me Kate is worth seeing, but I wish they could have solved that problem with Lois Lane. All right, so that's uh, Roundabout's uh, Kiss Me Kate. It's playing through June 30th at Studio 54. All right, next up, uh, Michael got up to Lincoln Center to see uh, John Guare's Nantucket Sleigh Ride with an all-star cast at the New House. So, Michael, tell us about that. Well, actually, this dovetails into Kiss Me Kate a little bit because I recalled, and I had to look it up uh, that actually for the last revival, the last Broadway revival of Kiss Me Kate, there were uncredited uh, script rewrites by John Guare, none of which I liked. Um, so I guess I have become, uh, I'm sorry to say, a non-fan of Mr. Guare. He uh, did write a couple of plays back in the day that were very well regarded, uh, specifically two of them, The House of Blue Leaves and Six Degrees of Separation. The House of Blue Leaves, I would like to see again because it's been decades since I saw it and I don't really remember uh, a lot about it. So I would like to see if that holds up. I think it was proven uh, in the recent, fairly recent Broadway revival that Six Degrees of Separation does not uh, really hold up uh, and that it seemed great at the time, but it was very much of its moment and it's actually really, really not that well written. Uh, so I don't think that, uh, you know, his, his work is really bearing the test of time. And this one, I, I would say, is, is unfortunately, I have to say, is a, a huge mess. Uh, uh, let me quote. There's a, a, a note from um, Alexis Gargagliano, uh, the editor of the Lincoln Center Theater Review. And the uh, first paragraph says, one of the great privileges of editing this magazine is working alongside the Lincoln Center Theater Review's executive editor, John Guare, and his armory of genius. John is a rapacious reader, and with his elephantine cache of knowledge, he's able to bridge ideas, people, and fields of study. I, 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 um, <laughs> I guess I agree with that to a certain extent, but I think it actually has worked to the detriment of his writing. This play is filled, 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 filled with um, cultural references. And it seems like almost you sometimes feel like every other line is a reference to something, uh, either a book, a movie, uh, a, a vacation spot, a store uh, that is intended to re 
uh, you know, provoke some kind of response, like a little laughter of recognition in the audience. But that is not – I mean when you do it for, for an entire play, that's not playwriting. Uh, so I, I, I think he is really – uh, based on this play, I, I, I hate to say it, but I really think he's kind of lost it. Uh, this is about a, a, a character who uh, is, I, I guess, sort of portrayed as a one-hit wonder uh, as far as uh, that he was a playwright uh, in the 70s and he had one hit and he hasn't – uh, really had one since then and is not really even a playwright anymore. And this character is named Edmund Gowrie, played by John, John Larroquette. Um, so, uh, but then it, it becomes a very fanciful, extremely fanciful, non-realistic journey that this fellow goes on. Uh, the characters include a cryogenically frozen Walt Disney, uh, uh, played by Douglas Sills, um, uh, another character is uh, the writer, the Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges, um, and there are constant references to uh, to uh, movies like Jaws and Suspicion, and there there's a lot about Roman Polanski, including an incredible line that I cannot believe is actually in this play and is actually spoken every night where somebody says uh, something to the effect of, oh, uh, jo- Roman Polanski is destined to be remembered for the fact that his baby was cut out of Sharon Tate's stomach. That is a line in this play. And then there are jokes. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the other reviewers said, uh, quote, unquote, the evening's many jokes about pedophilia seem ill-advised these days. Um, I, I think that this play is a mess. I can't believe it was produced. Uh, and But for what it's worth, although it got some very negative reviews, then it also received some positive reviews. And I hear that although initially uh, subscribers were bailing on it, uh, that then uh, the, some of the positive reviews came out and, and uh, they started to sell more tickets than they were originally. Um, so that is, but I am in the, you know, I, I guess I'm in the bail camp. Uh, I, I just really, really disliked it intensely. And I don't think director Jerry Zachs, well, I was going to say I don't think he did anything to help it, but I guess he did help it in, in terms of keep helping it move along very, very quickly. Uh, I also hear that about uh, 20 minutes or more were cut from the running time during previews. So I think they realized that uh, they couldn't do much, but at least they could kind of make it uh, less of a trial for the audiences. And that is my take on mm-hmm. Nantucket Sleigh Ride. All right. So Nantucket Sleigh Ride up at uh, Lincoln Center's Downstairs Theater is playing through May 5th, and uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter and Michael got over to one of our favorites, 59 East 59, to see a smart show called Smart Blonde. (laughs) So, Peter, why don't you get us started on Smart Blonde? Well, this is about Judy Holliday, who uh, is a person who won an Oscar for Born Yesterday in a very competitive year where – Betty Davis and Ann Baxter were up for uh, All About Eve and Gloria Swanson was up for Sunset Boulevard. And she also won a Tony uh, while she was competing against Julie Andrews and My Fair Lady when My Fair Lady was uh, the juggernaut. So that's pretty impressive. Mm. And while the former is mentioned in the show, the latter isn't. And I'm very surprised that they don't mention that as quite an achievement for Smart Blonde. Uh, Andrea Burns does uh, have quite an achievement in getting Judy Holliday's voice, that little bleat of a lamb voice that uh, Judy Holliday had. So she's watched a lot of the movies, um, not that there were that many, I'm sorry to say, but, um, and one of the reasons with House Sound American Activities, in the best scene of the play where we find out how she got around the House on American Activities, um, and mm. it's, it's not a great solution, but uh, in, in, in the real scope of things, but it was a good solution for her then and there, and of course she seems very ashamed that she took the so-called easy way out. There was no easy way out where it comes to HUAC, but nevertheless... So she's terrific in every way. The only thing that's wrong is the smile. She, uh, her smile has nothing to do with Judy Holliday's, but other than that, she is l- 
letter perfect and doing what she needs to do. So um, I think that's very impressive. Uh, it's a bigger show than uh, it is at 5090's 59th. What I mean is there are three other performers who must play everybody. So um, I, um, Andrea Bianchi, who uh, is one of my favorite performers, um, so many times people say pretty women cannot be funny women or they usually aren't funny women. Well, Andrea Bianchi is a very pretty woman and she's very funny. She's a terrific comedian and she does impersonations wonderfully. Her Ruth Gordon is truly, truly spot on. So, um, but here's the problem. <laughs> Somebody will come in and you don't know if it's Betty Comden. You don't know if it's a, a secretary. You don't know who it is because they have to play so many roles. So it, this is a show that really, if it does move to Broadway, uh, it would be nice to hire some more people and uh, take it off the rest of them. Uh, Cause I do think that's uh, a bit of a problem. Um, for those of us musical theater mavens, if you want to know anything about Hotspot, the last show she did in 1963, which was a failure, there's nothing about that at all in the show. And you might say, well, yeah, I mean, they're not going to mention a failure. In fact, they do. They mention Lorette, uh, her play about Lorette Taylor, the, the actress most famous for The Glass Menagerie. Uh, that's mentioned in passing. Uh, so I'm surprised that they don't um, do more uh, with uh, and include Hotspot. Uh, frankly, the play is a bit of a Wikipedia article. It basically um, deals with the highlights of her life. And uh, aside from that one scene that I'm talking about, where uh, the smart blonde must play a dumb blonde, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty routine. Um, but if you, can, if you can ignore the smile uh, that Andrea Burns has, and God love her, uh, you know, her orthodontist and dentist would be very proud of her, um, the rest of her is sensational. And um, it really is something to see or something to hear, uh, maybe even more than something to see. But still, uh, it's, it's quite an achievement. All right. Uh, Michael, what would you think? Yeah, I uh, I didn't notice the smile thing to be honest, but I agree with every other word Peter said. I I one of the main reasons I went to the show in the first place was for Andrea Burns, whom I love, and and similarly she was one of the main reasons I went to uh, see Carmelina recently at the York Theater. She is phenomenal, and uh, I I think another way, uh, if you want to be honest, completely honest. Uh, Another way that she didn't completely uh, replicate Judy Holiday is that actually Andrea's singing is is better. I would say her voice <laughs> is more more mellifluous. But um, the conceit of this show is that it's a recording studio at the late in her life, where Judy is working on an album with Jerry Mulligan, the musician with whom she became romantically involved. Uh, you know, in, in the latter part of her life. And actually, I have. Um, I think there were two albums uh, that were yielded from that partnership, and I have them, and they're really, really good. Uh, P.S. If you want to pick them up, um, so that is the, the the framing device, and then all of the uh, these other actors who initially play other people who are at the session for one reason or another, then they wind up um, falling into the roles of several, several, several other people in Judy's life, including I made a partial list. Okay, Harry Cohn, uh, Jerry Mulligan, Betty Comden, Adolph Green, Leonard Bernstein, David Oppenheim, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Judy's first girlfriend and relatives, et cetera, et cetera. So they really do stellar, stellar work. Uh, but uh, I do agree with Peter. Sometimes it was you know, it took you a, a few seconds to realize who they were supposed to be playing. Um, but uh, I can't even imagine this show without people of, of the talent of these three, Andrea Bianchi, Jonathan Spivey, and um, Mark Lotito. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I get the Wikipedia thing also, and I agree. I, I think that they tried to do too much. Uh, the story overall is so compelling, but I, I, I think they really – in trying to be so inclusive that it, it gets very kind of clunky and, and Wikipedia ish. So I wish they hadn't made that decision. Um, but, uh, Willie, Willie Holzman is the writer, by the way. And, and the director is Peter Flynn. Um, I think this could really be something with a little more work. And as Peter said, um, maybe some more actors, but also some fewer characters. I think, I really think some of those could be eliminated and that would help it tremendously. All right. So um, next up in our list here, uh, Michael and I uh, caught up with Ain't Too Proud. Peter talked about it last week. So, uh, Michael, what did you think of Ain't Too Proud? 
Well, overall, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was extremely well done. But uh, there again, I would say the 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 big flaw is the book by Dominique Morisseau. Um, uh, again, uh, it's a very similar comment to what I just said about Smart Blonde. I, I think the overall story of the Temptations uh, is is very compelling and was very well handled. Uh, but the actual dialogue. Um, is really very clunky uh, in many, many places. And I think that's unfortunate. I think if they had gotten a first-rank playwright to do the dialogue, this might be a really, really superb biomusical. But as it is now, I, I think it's somewhat less specifically because of the quality of the dialogue. Um, but also, um, uh, you know, uh, tied in with that, uh, the central character uh, – and main narrator of the show is the character Otis Williams, played by Derek Baskin. And you know, it, it, this is so ironic. Derek Baskin, prior to this, I would say, was primarily known for his role of a mute character named Gator in Memphis. And I, I have to say, I, I don't think that he is good enough an actor to carry this tremendous, tremendous amount of expositional dialogue or monologue, I guess is a, is a better word for it, that, that he has. He, um, he remains the narrator throughout the entire show, and it's, a, it's an incredible amount of, of information that he has to impart in addition to you know, the scenes in which he's actually interacting with the other characters, the other Temptations, played by James Harkness, uh, Joanne M. Jackson, Jeremy Pope, and Ephraim Sykes, and all of the other characters as well. So I um, – there again, uh, maybe a little more focus in the narrative. Maybe uh, perhaps they didn't have to start so early, or they they could have cut out some incidents in the you know in the be in the middle. Or uh, I I don't know uh, what exactly could have done, but I think it's a little, it's kind of too much trying to do too much is is another incidence here. Um, uh, as far as the music and the choreography, uh, the fabulous choreography by Sergio Trujillo, that was all great. And uh, Des McEnough kept it moving really, really well, as he did um, with Jersey Boys. Uh, I think, again, that benefited greatly from a much better book. Uh, but, uh, but the direction and the choreography are really – I think just about all you could ask. Um, I enjoyed seeing Jeremy Pope. Uh, in the show, but I thought his this was interesting. I thought his falsetto uh, that he he sings quite a lot in falsetto, uh, and I thought his falsetto, while very pretty, seemed really weak. But I also had the thought that maybe he was doing that purposely to preserve his voice for eight performances a week. So I'm not sure if that's why he's doing it, but I did notice that. And then finally, um, I think, uh, you know, it's funny, I've been saying for a while that I thought the title of the show is very odd. I don't know why you would call this show ain't too proud. I don't know how that uh, encompasses the story overall. But Peter made the point <laughs> last week about the ABCs. And even though, uh, you know, we don't maybe the ABCs as printed in the New York Times are are, are certainly not what they used to be. We do still have so many listings and so many online sites. And, you know, of course, they're, they're still done alphabetically if you look at them as a listing. And so at this point, Ain't Too Proud is right at the beginning. And I guess maybe that's why they did that. <laughs> oh, the TKTS booth, isn't it uh, listed alphabetically? There. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was. <laughs> yeah. uh, all of our lists, uh, very, very few lists are are not alphabetical. Uh, unless you have a big star in the cast, then they list the star first, then alphabetically. Everybody else. <laughs> the author's name. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, Michael, what night did you go to Ain't Too Proud? Or was it? Uh, uh, I went Wednesday night. Were you there Wednesday? Yes, I was. I noticed there was a lot of sound problems on Wednesday. I was thinking maybe Jeremy Pope's falsetto was a, attributable to a microphone sound issue well, or something. I, you know, like that? I, I did have that thought too because I I thought if the if the the sound person had just you know goosed it up a little bit when he was singing falsetto, it would have been fine. So yes, a good good catch. 
Yeah, uh, I really um, enjoyed the performances. Uh, Michael and Peter have talked about the problems with the book, which I agree with uh, some of the great music. I thought it was interesting the way that they were able to bring in uh, music that The Temptations did not make famous uh, mm. through, through yes. Dreamgirls and through War and things like that. They were I, when, they, when they first started to sing War, I was like, they sang War? I don't remember that. Uh, and then and it I, turns out they didn't. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. You, you just said, <laughs> that's so funny. You just said Dreamgirls. Of course you mean the Supreme. I, Supreme. Oh, my goodness. The but, Supreme <laughs> no, but also, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Peter, you are so right about the end of Act One. Yeah. Replicating Dreamgirls. I can't believe they did that. Yeah, I know. I mean, especially since that person who wound up replacing you know there is not i don't think that was really a famous person um and it's just not done well i think they should have ended with the uh the death of martin luther king uh. which comes comes right before that that's where they sh should have ended act one and then had a kind of a moving forward from that uh so i, I wish they had rethought that a little bit so i think that um I think that the audience really enjoyed itself. I think that this will enjoy a healthy run uh, and lock up the Imperial Theater for a few years. Uh, and this is an incredible, large group of talented people. So, uh, and Sergio Trujillo's work is just really—he just every time he get he gets a cast together, he makes them do things that are uh, just amazing. So, that is all good stuff happening over at the Imperial Theater with Ain't Too Proud. Um, Peter, next up, you got over to the DR2, the Dara Roth 2, uh, the smaller uh, theater off of um, Union Square, to see Accidentally Brave. So tell us about Accidentally Brave. Well, this is Maddie Corman's story about a terrible thing that happened to her about four years ago when uh, her husband, Jace Alexander, who was a very successful director, um, on Lauren Otter specifically, um, they were doing very well. Three children, uh, a set of twins, boys and a daughter, um, a cat and a dog, as she mentions, you know, an, an ideal life. She was working as an actress in movies. And um, unfortunately, it was discovered uh, that he was actually engaging in child pornography. And on that July 25th, 2015 date, while she was driving to work to film... Uh, a TV episode, her daughter called her frantically saying that the police were in the house. They took uh, her husband's computer and um, things looked very, very bad. And the poor soul had to go to work that day and act as if nothing had happened while she had to get her father and her brother over to the house to take care of the kids. And <clears throat> this was just the beginning of the nightmare that was going to happen. And she really makes it very specific as to what's going on in this 90-minute show, what she had to go through, um, that uh, other people sh sharing their stories, everybody has advice, everybody says you got to read this book, all that kind of business. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there she is hoping there's some sort of misunderstanding, but it isn't, and she's hearing terms like plea bargain and jail time, that her husband may very well go to jail. Um, the scandal of it, as she says... The world found out moments after we found out um, that, indeed, bad news travels fast. So um, so that's a problem as well. And um, she worries about, if I stay with him, what will people think of me for staying with him? Uh, will they think I'm loyal? Will they think that I'm an idiot, that I should get rid of him right away? I mean, because everybody's saying, I would dump him, you know, all that stuff. You know, it's, it's very, very hard. Um, she does talk about a celebrity, she won't name who it is, but who was tremendously helpful. She doesn't make it clear if this celebrity had this own problem in her life, but um, she really indicates that this was her angel. When she starts talking about an angel, there's actually a projection of an angel, and you start thinking she's, she found God. No, that will happen later. She will do that. But <clears throat> what's so amazing is um, the mixed feelings. Uh, as um, Little Red says in Into the Woods, excited and scared, well, almost every piece of dialogue here involves contradictions. If Howard Prince hadn't used that 
um, named for his first memoir, that should be the title of the show because she talks about, I'm going to do this, but on the other hand, if I do this, I do that. Or, more to the point, um, <clears throat> I felt this way, but then I felt exactly the opposite. There's a lot of that going on, and who can blame her? Because um, look at how her, her world is up. Uh, he and his too, of course. Um, he's fired. He's resigned from. He must resign from every job he has. Um, he was an assistant uh, for the DGA. It's. Uh, assist, I'm sorry, second vice president is what I should say. So um, now, usually scripts like this, they always sell themselves by saying, "But there's a lot of humor in this show." You know, whenever there's um, stuff about cancer or shows <laughs> like that, you always hear that. You know. Um, there's not much in this one, and there's not much that's attempted as humor. So um, occasionally there is a line um, that may make you laugh, but it's never rip-roaring funnies. And they, they really do not uh, try to do that. So even a line like uh, when she asked her husband, which bills did you pay before you went to rehab, which does have a kind of funny feel to it, also has a very dire feel to it, too. Now, also, we find out that in this year of call waiting, technology hurts you rather than helps you because there you are on the phone with your lawyer and then a friend is calling and um, and uh somebody else is calling of importance and yeah and imagine dealing with all these people you know juggling all these phone calls so um she does say that she loses 10 pounds in six days as a result of this but this is not a diet that anybody would want to go on to say the least uh, i would say at the end of this show your empathy level has risen so much that you'll want to rise out of your seat even if you're not the type of person who wants to be part of a standing ovation um, of course, Maddie Coleman will prefer that you stand because she's told the story that she's written so very well. Um, and that will be the bigger reason why you stand. But wow, um, it, it does pack a wallop. And uh, that's what it's supposed to do. And that's what it does. All right. Um, Peter, you also get over to the Atlantic Theater Company's production of The Mother at the Linda Gross Theater. So tell us about that. Well, the big thing about the mother and people are asking me, can you get me house seats, um, is the fact that Isabel Hupp, uh, let's see, a pair, that's how it's pronounced, a, uh, no, Upair. yeah, it rhymes with blue pair, that record label they used to put up bo uh, bootlegs. <clears throat> anyway, Isabel Upair <laughs> uh, is phenomenal as the mother. Here's a woman who's in a marriage she's not crazy about, but oh, is she crazy about her son? He's played by Justice Smith, and he's, um, you know, the, the, the surly 20-something. He's going through his own problems with his girlfriend. Um <clears throat> But uh, she loves her son, and you get that impression early on. Then you get the impression she really loves her son, and that you get the impression she really, really, really loves her son. I mean, when he comes out in the morning um, and um, he's got a shirt on but it isn't buttoned, she'll play with his chest hair. Um, and she does a very good job of calibrating this where it looks like she's just being affectionate all the way down to – ready to um, seriously um, go to bed with him. Uh, I think she would. Uh, so as a result, she has a lot of mixed feelings about the girlfriend, which you would expect. But the most sensational moment comes through a red dress. Now, <laughs> a red dress is musical theater's most valuable commodity. Think about it. Dolly, uh, Molly Brown. Cassie in Chorus Line wears a red dress. It may not be blood red, but it's red. Desiree in Little Night Music. Annie. I mean, <laughs> there are so many red dresses that are so significant in musical theater. That said, the red dress in this show turns out to be amazingly significant. Now, if you go to this show, if you can get a ticket, you're going to say when she puts on the red dress, what's the big deal? But believe me, there's a payoff later that's astonishing. A uh, very smart, very, very, very smart way of indicating that her love for her son really is um, over the top, to say the least. So Florian Zeller uh, is the writer and tremendously effective. It's, it's about an 85-minute play. There's not much of a set. Um, Chris Noth uh, plays the husband and does a very fine job of trying to cope with this woman who seems to be crazier than Blanche Dubois, and he's doing the best he can. 
Uh, is he having an affair? Uh, we wonder about that. That question will be answered, too, and in surprising fashion. But the point is, this is one of those plays where you see a scene, and then you see a scene that contradicts what you just saw. So you're not sure which is the real scene and which is the wrong scene, so to speak, uh, which is the untrue scene, I should say. Uh, but that's what happens all through this. One scene is followed by another that um, seems to be taking place at the exact same moment the other scene uh, started. So it's up to you to decide which play you want to see, which play you believe in. And uh, that's what the mother does very effectively as well. Oh, at times it's mind-numbing, and at times it's shocking. But uh, <laughs> at all times, Isabelle Huppert is phenomenal. One of the great performances of the season. Hard to get ticket. You get yeah, those you know phone better. calls too. Everybody's uh, trying to get tickets. Is keep... that right? Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, that's always a good sign for the Atlantic Theater Company. Yep. So uh, get your season tickets to these really good uh, off-Broadway companies like Atlantic. All right. Uh, next up. Michael and I got a chance to um, get to the Broadway production of Be More Chill. Both of us had seen it off-Broadway. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on Be More Chill? Well, I had pretty much the same feelings I had about the show when I saw it off-Broadway with some differences. I think there's been some changes. I I do still really like the score overall, music and lyrics by Joe Iconis, even though it's not – really like quote unquote my type of music uh i think that it's very melodic for uh you know for modern day pop rock music and also i very very much appreciate the fact that the lyrics rhyme i i listened specifically this time and i don't think i caught a single false rhyme so i uh I really hand it to him for that because there are so many examples otherwise, as we have discussed at length. And I I just find the music very, very catchy and melodic and very memorable. Um, I – uh, although a, a huge caveat, um, I I still feel that it's tremendously overamplified. Uh, I, I don't – I don't see why those that has to go hand in hand, you know, uh, contemporary music over amplification. I, I, I don't think it does anyone any good. And uh, I think it only does harm. Uh, uh, ironically, uh, someone who is in a position to know told me that they actually dialed back the volume level a little mm-hmm. bit for the for the critics performances. Uh, and that did seem maybe a little less killingly loud than it was when I saw it off Broadway. So I don't know if that's true, but it's still, it's still a little bit too much. Um, I think the uh, book by Joe, I believe it's pronounced trace. Is that correct? Does anyone know? No idea. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Joe trace T R A C Z. Um, is it, it seems to me a, a, a really good adaptation, although I haven't read the original, uh, novel by Ned Vizzini about this, uh, this young man, uh, Jeremy, here who is feeling very uncool and out of it at his high school. And so he takes a pill uh, that he hears about this very, very uh, secret, uh, secret pill that no one's supposed to know about. And you can't find any information about it on the Internet, which should be a tremendous red flag. But anyway, he finds out about it. He takes it anyway. And uh, it turns out this pill basically uh, uh, when ingested becomes a supercomputer um, that takes over his life and his personality. Uh, unfortunately, uh, ter- it turns out this supercomputer uh, is bent on world domination. Uh, you know, there are a lot of tropes in this that are uh, familiar from previous science fiction films and books and 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 etc. Um, so it's it's really, I think overall, it's very clever, um, and I do. As I said, I, I I really love the score. I I'd known Joe Iconis' work to a certain extent from um, s- some previous uh, things that he had done, uh, standalone songs I had heard in various concerts, uh, but also uh, his off Broadway show Blood Song of Love, which I, I really enjoyed very much. So I, um, I I'm a big fan of his. Ironically, uh, interestingly, uh, I as I said, I I, I 
I do like the lyrics uh, overall. I think they're great, and I'm glad that they that they rhyme, and uh, a lot of them are very clever. But there are um, some exceptions, and the person that I went with, uh, who uh, interestingly and is as a an 18 year old, uh, the first thing he said when I asked him what he thought of it was he he. He didn't like the lyrics very much, and I think the reason he said that is that they are uh, there are certain songs that are very 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 repetitious, and this is done, um, you know, obviously intentionally. Uh, I think to have those phrases stick in your mind, but uh, but there is a you know at a price, uh, and I think that that's what my friend was negatively reacting to. Also, there. Um, uh, something I, I couldn't help noticing. This is meant to be like the most modern, uh, quote unquote, musical, you know, basically that's on the boards right now. But I think it's already showing some signs of being dated. The very first lyric um, is Jeremy uh, is sitting there with his laptop and he sings, I'm waiting for my porn to download. Now, I mean, not uh, um, an expert on that, but I don't know <laughs> in, in, in the, you know, it, with current technology, if one actually has to wait for anything to download. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, you know, it sounds like maybe this was written a several several years ago um you know I, I or maybe one could say i don't know if he has a bad wi-fi connection i suppose you could justify it that way but then um shortly after that he has a line um a lyric about how something about how he wants to be uh robert de niro as the hero uh and rather than joe pesci now, first of all, I don't know if 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 anyone can think of any movie in which Robert De Niro actually played anything that could be called a hero, uh-huh. and and even if you're using hero in in terms of leading man, I mean, wasn't that like 30 years ago? Uh-huh. Uh, so I just thought I, I, it would be interesting to find out when. Uh, Joe Iconis and Joe Trace started writing this piece because I, I and and you you run the risk of that if you're trying to be very very au courant uh, you do run the risk of of what you write becoming very quickly dated if you're going to get into pop cultural references and things of that sort so um, that's a, a problem that I have with be more chill that and the overamplification also uh, just briefly I um, it seems to me that the acting style and directing style has been pumped up significantly for Broadway. I didn't notice this uh, when it was off Broadway, but several of the actors, um, including uh, Stephanie Sue, uh, it seems to me that they're really, really overacting. And I think maybe this was done intentionally that, that, that somebody felt, well, it's on Broadway now and we have to be really, really big. But I think it's actually less effective uh, to have people do that. And another thing I noticed that um, Jason Tam, who plays the personification of the squip, uh, the pill that Jeremy takes, um, now he seems to be doing a complete um, uh imitation almost of Keanu Reeves in uh, The Matrix. Uh, and and the character is referred to, uh, you know, as somebody says, you look like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Uh, but I didn't remember him doing that off-Broadway, at least not as far as uh, saying, using that same uh, kind of Sal Cal dude bro inflection on every line. And I think that's to the detriment of his performance. So whether that was his decision or Stephen Brackett's, uh, I I, I wish that hadn't been made, and I think it's a mistake. Um, and there again, uh, even The Matrix is is kind of an old, uh, you know, a quote unquote old movie at this point. I guess maybe it's in the consciousness of, of very young people. Maybe they all watch it on, you know, on on video uh, and stream it. Um, but I wouldn't think that that would be the first, uh, you know, movie image that would pop into the minds of present day young people uh, of high school age. So I wonder about all that. And, uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, I, I am also curious to see how this show does in the long term in terms of ticket sales. Uh, it has a rabid, rabid fan base, as we have read uh, constantly. But I don't know if it's a, how broad of a fan base it is. And I, and I do think that for a show to succeed on Broadway in, a, in any kind of a long ride, it does have to speak to the larger population. Uh, and I'm not sure um, 
if a lot of adults are necessarily going to be into it. So uh, I agree with a lot of what you're what you said there, Michael. Uh, my experience was off Broadway was so incredibly loud, and the Broadway experience I was very happy that it wasn't as loud, and I was yes. able to actually hear a lot of the lyrics because it the the everything wasn't so overwhelming. Uh, and and allowed us to uh, really focus on the show rather than being shocked by the show. Uh, I have to say that I enjoyed it better than the Off-Broadway show. I still am not a huge fan of it. Uh, and I talked to uh, some people who are, who are fans of it um, uh, that uh, are, you know, 20, 21, 22 years old or so. And they actually said to me, you're just too old to understand it. Uh, <laughs> well, there you have it. And, I, and, and so I was like, okay, but, you know, uh, is this a failure of – is this going to be a failure of the production that uh, – because do 20, 21, 22-year-olds, are, are they going to be able to afford a Broadway ticket? Uh, and certainly there are, you know – $79 mezzanine seats, but not a lot of them. Uh, but they really need to fill the, fill the orchestra seats in order to keep this uh, enterprise running. And I, I want to point out that uh, Keanu Reeves is older than me. And and, <laughs> I, I'm not, and The Matrix is, as you pointed out, is a pretty dated movie. And I don't even think that these 21-year-old people knew the reference to Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. I think that it's just a reference that's lost on them, that they just think, hey, this is really interesting and cool. Uh, um, yeah, and, and interestingly, uh, this uh, th that that was a, a, an afterthought at some point when, I guess, when Jason Tam came yeah. on, mm -hmm. because when the show was done at the Two River Theater in New Jersey, uh, that role was played by uh, – uh, I don't have his name right in front of me, Eric Mike, Michael Morris, uh, who is now in uh, King Kong. And he, uh, I don't think that the Keanu Reeves thing was in there because he was he's a very different ethnic type, et cetera. So I, I think that was all an afterthought and maybe it wasn't the best afterthought. Also, um, I had that discussion with my with my young friend during intermission about the references and, and whether or the show was already starting to seem dated. And I brought up the De Niro thing and the woman who was sitting in front of me with her young daughter uh, and husband turned around and said to me, her, my daughter had to ask me who that was. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I think there is some point to the, the datedness, and it's I, I wonder if the creators even recognize that. So that's Be More Chill. It, uh, it's been playing to 90% um, capacity in the, uh, in the Lyceum, um, and the, the grosses are in the 700s. Which is uh, about eighty, some odd, eighty-five percent of uh, the potential grosses. So they're going to come into uh, the summer, where I, I suppose that they're going to be in that hundred percent range. But those grosses, you know, still have to get in that million-dollar, in that million-dollar level uh, to be considered uh, a Broadway hit. And we'll see what happens as. Uh, as kids go back to school, and if uh, if younger people are going to be able to afford these uh, afford tickets, if the marketing is geared towards younger people, but I, the number of adults that I've uh, adults being people thirty and above, or people who are typically Broadway goers, are not as excited about this. Uh, Michael Riedel's column started mm. uh, pointing fingers this week about. Uh, some internal fights. Those fights I had heard as uh, not really fights. Uh, I think it's getting more dramatized in Riedel's column than they actually were. We, we had heard about a lot of those things before actually it went into previews that there was dissension in the ranks, but it seems to have calmed down. And I mentioned to Michael Portantier before we started recording that 
if this uh, play was bringing in a million to a million five a week, none of these fights would be <laughs> happening if they are still happening. I, I, I don't know how, how much that that is actually true. Right. But, but specifically, I mean, specifically the information in the article, the main information was that the show has changed both its press agent and its general manager, yeah. which is kind of huge. Yeah. That is that's, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Michael, because that and the the words of uh, of the producer <laughs> in there. Uh, oh yes, uh, I'm not sure that many people are going to rally to work with him again. So, <laughs> all right, um, I'm not going to say that I enjoyed hearing from this uh, fan of Be More Chill that uh, I was too old to understand it, it, it made me feel really angry. Peter, did you feel the anger? <laughs> Not at all. So Peter saw a play called Do You Feel Anger at the Vineyard Theater. So Peter, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I didn't feel anger at all. Uh, but uh, this is a, a tough show um, in the sense that it wants to be serious in telling us that it's very hard for people to get empathy. And yet, uh, it goes for a very farcical approach. So, uh, it's a play by a young writer uh, whose name is Mara Nelson Greenberg. And she takes us to an office room, um, one of those conference rooms, uh, with the table and the chairs all around it, that type of thing. And what has happened is Sophia has been hired as an empathy counselor to make sure that the employees um, know the current law of the land where it comes to uh, sensitivity, uh, sexual harassment, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly empathy, empathy, trying to understand what other people feel is something that she mentions uh, more than once. And she's dealing with a lot of people who are, um, are not into it. And uh, it's a big struggle for her, especially the men in the office. Now, it's, it's purposely farcical, as I say, because, for example, uh, the men in the office have no idea, I mean no idea, of what a woman's period is. I mean, that is literally stated. She mentions a period, and they say, what are you talking about? And um, they, they, they've never heard of it before. Now, of course, we all have. Of course, we know. But this is the playwright's way of saying that men know nothing about women. And so it, it's this type of approach. It always goes overboard to make a point like that. And so it gets a little wearing, even though this is, again, one of the shorter plays that we um, – we see uh, about 85 minutes as well. Uh, but still, uh, having this point uh, come back in, in over-the-top ways um, may not be as satisfying as it could be. Nothing's wrong with the cast at all. Sophia, uh, played by Tiffany Lee Villarin, is, is quite, quite fine. And Megan Hill, who I admired so much, so much in Eddie and Dave, playing uh, a punk rocker type, uh, is here in this one and is equally wonderful as uh, a woman who isn't uh, quite the um, sharpest knife in the draw, to use an expression that's been used many too many times, but it's all I can think of at the moment. Anyway, um, she, she has her problems too, and we do get an impression here that what the playwright may very well be saying is that uh, women's limited experience in, uh, in the corporate world uh, keeps them a little on the stupid side. There's a lot involving blood, not just um, in the sense of the period, but a lot involving blood that I did not understand at all, which may be my failing, which may be the playwright's failing. Choose one. Um, director Margot Bordelon uh, does a fine job in doing what the script wants her to do, uh, which is to exaggerate. And uh, so this is um, not a highlight of the season, I would say. Um, I do think that um, the lighting <laughs> is exactly right for an office. So uh, uh, Marie Yokoyama um, certainly knew that this is the type of play where you put the lights up and just let them go and leave it at that. Now, the one complication in the play that is very interesting is that um, Sophia's mother, played by, by Jean Sakata, calls her daughter quite a bit, and the daughter doesn't return her phone calls. So how empathetic is the daughter 
she doesn't seem to be tying into the mother's problem. And that was the best um, series of scenes in the play, where the, where the mother is really getting concerned she hasn't been hearing from her daughter, but the daughter's just too busy to call her, or doesn't care, or what. But uh, Empathist Heal Thyself is really what com- it comes down to there. But um, I think the ultimate point of the play is that um, it, you, you can lead a horse to empathy, but you can't make him um, assimilate it. So, so um, yeah, not, not, not the greatest, but um, certainly sit-throughable. All right. So uh, before we wrap up for today, Michael... You're going to have everybody very jealous here because what are you doing tonight, March 31st? Oh, I'm, I'm getting to go to uh, the Encompass New Opera Theater gala fundraiser. And tonight uh, they, they honor fabulous people every year. And tonight they are honoring Laura Benanti and Bartlett Cher, which is kind of wonderful in itself because they're working together as we speak on My Fair Lady, and of course, there's the whole backstory of that, that uh, Laura wanted the role originally and didn't get it and now is, you know, is doing a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant job of playing Eliza Doolittle in this production, which has gotten uh, even better now that she is in it. Uh, so that is, uh, I guess this is a um, uh, a partnership that, didn't exist until recently, and now they're both being honored. Uh, there are going to be reminiscences and performances by such uh, people as Whitney Bashore, Adam Gettle, Sheldon Harnick, uh, J.T. Rogers, and Maury Yeston, and the evening's going to be hosted by Midge Wolsey. And, it's, and on top of all that, it's at the beautiful National Arts Club in Gramercy Park. So I'm really, really looking forward to being there. It's every year. It's just one of the highlights of of my year. So uh, I, I don't I see any reason why this won't be right in line with that. All right. So uh, I mentioned this on uh, today on Broadway, but I wanted to mention it here as well because some folks don't listen to both shows. Uh, um, theater Communication Group's uh, publication, American Theater, has a podcast called Three on the Isle. And this week, uh, uh, Terry Teachout, Elizabeth Vincentelli, and uh, Peter Marks uh, interviewed uh, Laura Benanti. And it is such a great interview and podcast. And Laura talks about uh, her life and her career and such really, really great things in there. So uh, if you have a chance, get over to Three on the Isle and take a listen to their podcast because it's a really wonderful thing, especially hand in hand with the uh, honor that Laura is going to be receiving tonight. Thank you for saying that. I, I definitely want to catch up with that. She is, you know, she's so smart and so, so funny. She talks, she, you know, she does not hold back anything. She has a nope. story about Arthur Lawrence that uh, oh, oh, we, really? should, we should all oh. listen to and talk about. It oh, is a brutal, brutal story with a, with a happy ending at the end. Oh, I my. Not, not that I want to ruin it, but, uh, you know, Laura has a really interesting take on Arthur Lawrence, especially talking to, you know, Jeremy Jordan also had that uh, yes. story. Yes. So piecing these different stories uh, together gives us a different view on on the man. Uh, Arthur Lawrence. So uh, take a listen to that. And if you're a listener who uh, wants to, you know, let us know what you think about that, you know, reach out to us. We have many ways to reach out on our on our um, uh, Twitter, Facebook, email, smoke signals, things like that. You can reach uh-huh. us many different ways. So let's uh, wrap it up for today. Before we get on, I want to remind everybody that you can. Um, Find the show notes to this at broaderradio.com. That way, uh, and download our episodes. Uh, that way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to a- Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to list- happen to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. Our Heart Radio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me are found on that page. You can weigh in on the Arthur Lawrence stories and uh, take a. There's a direct link to the Three in the Isle uh, podcast in the show notes as well. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? 
Yeah, most shows that close out of town are never heard from again. However, there was one drama that shuddered and resurfaced about a decade later with a different title and became a TV series that ran 13 seasons. What's the name of the original play and the series? Well, the play was called Prescription Murder, and it became Columbo. Jack Leshner was the first to get it, although he corrected my statistic of 13 seasons. That's what IMDb cites. Yes, he admits that Columbo was aired during 13 seasons, but the last three were simply specials, and the 10 was the correct number. So I apologize if I threw anybody off by the uh, IMDb's uh, statistic. Uh, Jack was followed by Ron Fassler, and not by Tony Janicki. You can't win them all, Tony. <laughs> Maybe you'll make a comeback this week with this question. What do Tony winners Keen Curtis, Randy Graff, Nathan Lane, Anna Quayle, Victor Spinetti, and Scott Wise all have in common? Mm. Interesting. All right. So if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Take your hands out of your pockets. Arch your back, puff out your chest. Add some swagger to your gait, or you'll look like a masturbator. Fix your posture, then the rest. But I am a masturbator. We'll fix that. All your nerdiness is ugly. Nerd? I thought I was more of a geek. All your stammering's a chore. Uh, uh, what? Your ticks and fidgets are persistent, and your charm is non-existent. We'll fix your vibe, then fix some more. But, but, I, but, but, no, wait. stop. Oh, everything about you is so terrible. Everything about you makes me want to die. Jesus Christ. So don't freak out and don't resist and have no doubt if I assist you will be more chill.